Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is the Reverend Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert. Kenyatta is Associate Professor of Homiletics at the Howard University Divinity School. He earned his BA in Political Science from Baylor University and both his MDiv and PhD in Practical Theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. We talk about his latest book, Exodus Preaching, Crafting Sermons about Justice and Hope, and about preaching and religious life in North America in general. It was a great conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I give you Kenyatta Gilbert. Kenyatta, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, my brother. How are you? I'm well. It's uh, October and, you know, summer is fade, has faded. We are into the, the fall season. You are, I'm sure, in the throes of teaching at Howard Divinity School. Yes, uh, I am. Yes, I am. And nearing the mid-semester. So Now, you teach preaching, which... I think like it is an interesting endeavor because it, it, it's something that I think everybody has a sense of what it is probably when they're at divinity school, because they've been preached to, if they're going to divinity school, they've probably imagined preaching and thought of themselves preaching. Right. And so there's probably a lot of assumptions uh, about like what the discipline is and stuff. I mean, do you find that, do you, do you find you have to, how do students come in with with do they come in with lots of expectations and assumptions that you have to sort of take apart right so as you know um much of what we bring to uh theological uh education comes primarily from our own embedded theologies and traditions things that um we are biased toward and um i see no less than than that you know some of my students have been preaching uh, just as long as I have, and then others um, have stage fright and are afraid to do any forms of public speaking. And and um, quite frankly, I just try to set up the course so that I can meet students where they are. As someone who teaches preaching and writes about it, I mean, I want to ask you some questions about your newest book, Exodus Preaching. But as someone who teaches preaching, and you're also a religious person, I mean, I, I think of that Hair Club for Men commercial from, like the, I guess, the 80s where the guy was like, I'm not also part of the hair uh, hair club for president hair club for men. I'm also a client and he pulls this to pay off or whatever, but you're, you're a, a Christian, uh, someone yeah. that regularly goes to church. Is, is there, are there any occupational hazards going to church on Sunday as in the, in the pew, because you're not just an accomplished preacher, you teach preaching. I mean, do you, do you have to turn off that switch? Or, I mean, or, or do you have to take the hat off? I mean, is it, is it awkward worshiping in a church? Are you sort of thinking, ah, this is a B plus, B minus? Like, I mean, how does that work for you? <laughs> well, I, I try as best to uh, be humble in, uh, in respect to what I have been given. And so I do, uh, I'm well aware that because of what I do vocationally, uh, if a person or if a pastor knows that uh, I am a homotician, by default, they think that they are being graded. However, when I go to church, it's it's out of a, an intense need myself to hear the gospel, to be addressed. I never I never stand in a place of a I, I would hope I'd never uh, it not be perceived that I'm standing in a place of arrogance or, or as if I mastered preaching in any way and that I can't learn from another whose professional, personal experiences um, might be different from my own. And so I try to come in um, spaces such as those with uh, with some humility, uh, recognizing my own humanity and the humanity of, of the person who's uh, preaching. Uh, and it's And it's in some ways extremely frustrating at, at points, especially when I don't share some of the same theology that um, I hear because I realize how important uh, the proclamation of the gospel is and how uh, our own biases can bleed into that what that 
that which is being proclaimed. And so there are certain theological views that I think are more hurtful or harmful than others. And I want to always be sensitive enough uh, in that in that respect. But I, I, I must tell you that as of late, I have been extremely frustrated with some of the preaching that I've that I've heard. Yeah, you gave a sermon on the day one broadcast that I listened to. It was I think you preached like three years ago, and you talked about Pinocchio theology, which is great. You used this. You're, you're talking about Jeremiah, I think the 23rd chapter. You're talking about yeah. this Pinocchio theology, where sort of people kind of uh, tell it, it, it's truthiness, right? Like it's in the area of fake news, sort of like <laughs> they sort of tickle the ears of people. They kind of it, it's just ideology. So it's sort of put, putting God in their back pocket and right. for an agenda that you know. And oftentimes there, this is a, a a conspiracy or a contract between. The pulpit and the pew, right? The people in the pew want it, and the person in the pulpit is willing to give it. And it, and it's you scratch my back, I scratch yours, and and it, it's often such a comfortable alliance, right? That, yeah, that it's transactional. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And and it's, I mean, that that's really uh, depressing on one level, and yet it goes on all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, and unfortunately, we you know we we live in a market driven culture and much of what we do is not disinterested it's you know self-interested <laughs> <laughs> so you've written this book exodus preaching crafting yeah. sermons about justice and hope why this book why did you why did the world need this book in your opinion why did you why did you spend because it's, it's a lot of work to write a book i mean it's 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 a lot it's, it's body and soul goes into it so why this book right. So for me, I wanted to write something, a book that was uncomplicated, that was accessible uh, about interpreting the gospel based on the principles of justice and hope. I wanted to also shine a spotlight on some uh, less known uh, new generation, uh, a new generation of African-American preachers that have emerged whose creativity, wisdom and skill have much to teach preachers and um and what it means to t- uh, preach with a prophetic consciousness. Uh, I wanted to, to write about truth-telling during uh, times of universal deceit. I wanted to produce something revolutionary in the discipline of homiletics that only I could write. Uh, so you ask the question, why, why now? Because preachers, I think, need some way to craft better sermons that honor God, uh, that are practical and useful for resourcing faith in Christian communities of all stripes um, that are culturally particular and that esteem uh, human personhood. Yeah, it's interesting. The philosopher Martin Heidegger talks about this concept of throneness. And he's like, you know, you come into the world and you're thrown someplace. You don't get to choose it. Like you're. That's right. We're all radically, you know, uh, circumscribed, right? Like you, you just, you don't get to choose where you're born, you know, how smart you are, how tall you are. Right. Uh, whether you're articulate or or less so, you know, you know whether you could play the trombone or you can't, and 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 you talk about that the the importance of context. I mean, it it it's not as though you you could reduce everything to social context context because people can see movies or or read books from a context very different than their own and still connect to the universal human story. And yet it's always through the particular that you get to the universal, right? It's, oh, it's never sort of abstract. It's, 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 it's the most universal stories are usually the ones that mine the particular, the deepest, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. And we have to have the courage if that is not our particular story to allow someone else to own their own story and to see what are the commonalities uh, between stories. I think that's how we grow. You also, you wrote this book, after 2016, right? I mean, this. I mean, I, I, I like it's. It's so like the Trumpification of everything. But Donald Trump is everywhere, and I mean, I wonder how much that. It's interesting because you have a figure like Barack Obama, sure. Which you know, if it, despite you know the persistent sort of racism and systemic injustice, you look at. I mean, Obama's election and re-election seems like oh gosh, we're 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 maybe we're ma- moving forward a bit, right? Like this is you know, there's. Uh, not just an African-American, but one with the name Barack Hussein Obama gets reelected. And then the the election of Donald Trump almost, it it seems like a step back. (laughs) I mean, I I wonder how much just of that reality, uh, it it, it, it kind of with the 
sort of coarse discourse, the sort of sure. race baiting and dog, I mean, it's a dog whistling. Something's just a, a siren, like <laughs> fire, fire. Like, like it's, 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 you know, how did, how did, how did that shape write in the book? Well, you know, to be quite honest, <clears throat> I try to, to think about prophetic preaching, not along um, American politics, partisan lines. I want to, I want to ex- explode that and to think about prophetic preaching as rupturing uh, these theological camps in which we place ourselves. And so, so for me, the book is about getting people to an honest place uh, so that they can be disruptive, um, but disciplined and pastoral in the way in which they uh, serve God's people. Now, um, with the, the Trumpian, uh, the Trumpian uh, view of reality as it pertains to religious traditions and uh, the way one thinks about uh, their own faith, um, I find that there are Christianities, plural, uh, that often um, suggest that we're clearly not reading the same Bible, <laughs> or at least we're not even in the same ballpark of interpreting uh, who Jesus is in the same way. And so I'm wondering quite frequently when Jesus is uh, aligned with uh, power uh, or empire, whether or not we are um, experiencing or interpreting Jesus as um, as the same Palestinian Jew who is not wealthy. Um, Jesus was an American. Jesus was not European. Jesus did not speak English. He wasn't Protestant nor Roman Catholic. He wasn't evangelical, fundamentalist, nor was Jesus mainline or liberal. Jesus wasn't Republican or Democrat. So um, so I, I think what prophetic preaching does, it, it, it flips all of that and it suggests uh, that our own visual ecology has to change around how we see Jesus. And if we see Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, then, then that means we, we have to be in touch or be uh, reacquainted uh, with, with, with the Messiah who came incarnationally, incarnationally to, save, uh, to save a society that could not save uh, itself. Yeah, you have this great warning. I think it's in the fourth chapter of the book where you talk about these great, uh, great warning to like preachers who are activists mm-hmm. or or clerical politicians. You know, people that are sort of. I mean, you make a distinction: sort of the edgier, sort of prophetic people who are kind of critiquing the system versus uh, you know certain clerical politicians who who ha- are able to sort of mobilize and affect change within the system. Right. And you say that there's the danger for the activist of self-righteousness and for the one who's the establishment person of, of sort of blurring church-state lines or getting too cozy with the levers of power. That, that, that these are, are occupational hazards for both the activist and the influencer, right? That's right. That's right. Do you find that to be true yourself? Because yeah, it's easy I, yeah. to blur those lines and it's easy to, to, to become self-righteous in one's own uh, eyes. Well, I mean, full disclosure. I mean, I throw a lot, a lot of our listeners know this, but or, like I'm actually, in addition to this podcast, I, I, I'm a working minister. And I think I, somebody once said to me in a different congregation that, and this person was a person whose politics were different than mine. He, he said, you know, one of the things I enjoy about your preaching is nobody would guess your politics from your preaching. But you have a warning in the book about people who avoid uh, uh, certain issues. Uh, and I think that's what I do. <laughs> I mean, I I don't think it's because I say such edgy, offensive things that offend everybody. I, I almost think I sort of, you know, I can remember one time I, I mentioned specifically torture years ago uh, or something. But I, I think it is thorny because it, it seems like there are so few few examples in the church in North America, whether it's the black church, the white church, uh, various sort of other ethnic kind of communities where, where you see someone that you're like, oh, wow, they're an equal opportunity offender where they really are. I mean, I mean, the only person yeah. I can kind of think of is someone like Pope Francis, who one day he says something about human sexuality that it's, it's traditional. Then he's talking about capitalism and labor and he's he's all over the map. But whether you agree on with him on any given issue, yeah. it seems like he just 
plays it so uh, uh, straight up like that he's that you could never. But, but I, I just there's not many examples of that. Right. I mean, I just find it hard right. to find practical examples of people like that. I, I agree. I mean, because we're all in some ways beholden to something uh, that gives us a, a reticence about standing courageously in moments in which uh, there's expected opposition to what one is uh, trying to do or say. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. You say in the beginning of the book that what marks what you call prophetic preaching mm-hmm. is four things. Uh, it unmasks systemic evil and deceptive human practices. Uh, so, you know, through moral suasion and, and subversive rhetoric. So it does, it, it, it talks about these deep rooted things mm-hmm. that are deleterious to the human condition and human flourishing. It remains intermittently hopeful when confronted with tragedy and despair, which I, and it's so interesting. It's, I, I think as, as I was reading that, I thought of Cornell West and how I, whenever I seem to do public opinion appearances, he's very honest about uh, the, the systemic nature of evil in the West and in, in the wider world. And yet he's kind of a happy warrior and you see, he's neither an optimist nor a pessimist, but he's full of hope, which is, sure. and then you say you connect the speech act with just actions as con- as concrete practice to help people participate in the naming of the reality. So there's an invitation where people can actually step into the reality that's being named around them. And this is, I love this. This is like maybe my favorite. <laughs> carries an impulse for beauty in its use of language and culture. That, that there's something about that, you know, this ancient kind of, uh, I guess, philosophical thing, you know, pre-Socratics goes back, that there's this thread between the true, the good, and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that the beautiful is, you know, we we... What we find beautiful, we love, and what we love, we find beautiful. And generally, you know, that's why sometimes a person that we fall in love with starts to look differently than when we first met them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that your commitment to beauty, and and so that this there has to be a joy and hope to this, and also the, aesthetically there has to be something that uh, actually people come away with with something a vision of of something that's beautiful. That's right. That's right. The prophet is a poet. And when we lose sight of that, we, we, um, we consign ourselves to a prose flattened world. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, as you know, uh, in his prophetic imagination talks about this alternative consciousness and how the prophets of scripture were able to uh, speak truth to power in such a way that it actually altered, it altered perception. Uh, it had to be evocative and it had to prick the numbness in order for people to see an alternative reality, one in which God was bringing, bringing uh, about. Yeah, it's sort of like the one who tells the best story wins, right? And, and in a world where all these competing <laughs> yeah, stories, so this, and the best story has got to be, it's got to be beautiful and true. I mean, it's got to, it's got to, it's got to have this power to, so there's this, uh, uh, oh, shoot, this is this. Uh, 18th century thinker I'm thinking of and the names now escape me but oh, I think I, I think uh, we talked about in this sermon of mine you, you gave me some feedback on this about the, the replacement of an affection and how how basically this guy was a moral philosopher and a preacher and he said that you can't dislodge one affection without replacing it with another because yes. the human heart longs and so you so you can't sort of dislocate people from a sort of oppressive reality unless you give them a reality that they long for more. That's right. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and so I also argue that if one is to be prophetic or if a community is to be prophetic, there has to be some space, some liberating space, some freedom in order to do that, uh, to develop a, uh, a prophetic, uh, uh, mode or methodology or community. Uh, otherwise that, that prophet will be, or that prophetic ministry won't have sustainability. Um, One of the things I found I appreciate about your book, I, a lot of the way I've thought about preaching over the past few years has been through the lens of stand-up comedy. And mm-hmm. I, I, I listen to Howard Stern all the time, and he has a lot of comedians on. And there's this sense that, like this, you know, that, that writing the stuff is so hard because even if you write it well, it could fall flat. And, and and yet, like you have to have this preparation. The preparation doesn't guarantee it'll go well, and yet it's it's still the prerequisite, right? And and then I, there's this sense that there's so many of these comics that are sort of they view it less competitively and almost more collaboratively. They they talk with each other and they're and, and they they talk about what they're and appreciate each other's work. And you have this collegial approach in this book, 
where you highlight all these preachers who you're saying there's a generation of preachers out there that are not on the radar yet. Uh, they're, but you know them because you've kind of come up with them and you've been colleagues in, in, in many circles. And it's so collaborative. And it, it strikes me that not a lot of preachers have that collaborative spirit. It's almost more competitive, right? Like, sure. you, you know, you kind of, when preachers get together, it's like you have the edifice complex or who <laughs> built the most parking spots and who has this. And people... It, it's not like this fellowship of comedians where everybody realizes how hard it is and, and they see themselves as like artists, you know, looking together for inspiration. It almost seems more like the market driven stuff you've talked about where like preachers, uh, it, it's a, it seems like a lonely existence for, for preachers. It, it is. And um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, um, if preachers are part artists, if they're artists, then often there's this sense of, suffering uh, in some way, and often that's uh, depression. And I take that uh, very seriously if you kind of study the comedians, if you study people who have kind of insight uh, in situations of adversity, uh, typically they have their own lives and mental states tend to be very fragile. And I don't, um, and I'm not immune to that as well. You know, I suffer in many ways from uh, uh, things that that cripple me on some days and liberate me on other days. And so, so I'm very sympathetic to uh, people who have what I call kind of a, a third eye, who have a second sightness uh, in looking at uh, our reality. Um, I don't think. If, if we are true to our God-given potential and assignments, I don't think we have to be any other preacher but the preacher that God has called us to be. Um, I think emulation is great. You know, I, God didn't make me Luke Powery. <laughs> God didn't make me Scott Jones. God didn't make me uh, anyone but Kenyatta Gilbert. And uh, if I'm true to my assignment and I realize that if I'm preaching in a way that is summoned by God, if it's God summoned speech, then only I can say what I can say in the way in which I can say it for that particular community on that particular day um, at that particular time. That's interesting. I heard this story of, a, I think it was an AME Zion preacher who had a lot of sons in the ministry. I think they were all sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this guy had like a, a, his leg was wounded in World War II, or Korea, maybe. And he had kind of, when he would really get fired up, like two thirds of the sermon, he would start like walking back and forth and he kind of dragged his leg, you know? And so they said, so they said that like these guys that would come up with the mission, they would do the same thing. Like none of them were shot in the leg, but they would kind of drag their leg. <laughs> right? and that, it is interesting though, because the, the imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? And, sure, sure. and you do emulate your heroes, but then I wonder like how you find your voice in the midst of emulation. Like how do cause I, I feel like that, that stuff is just natural, right? You, you're going to do some emulation, but how do you sort of, uh, find your voice in the emulating process. No, that's good. I think we we become our exposures. And so if I insist on just listening to Gardner Taylor uh, to the disregard of other fine preachers, then of course I'm going to be uh, subjecting myself to mimicry and not finding my own uh, particular uh, voice. And so, you know, we, we are in some ways our exposures. And so if I'm reading uh, voraciously in all fields of, of study or what have you uh, beyond the scriptures, then ought, ought to sound differently. I, you know, I, 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 you know that's, how, that's just how I see it. And when Christian preachers don't read beyond the Bible, then they become, they, they become walking uh, biblicist, <laughs> and uh, and often they don't touch ground uh, in the world in which we inhabit. I, I was at a wedding recently where the pastor. I, I looked at the pastor's website mm-hmm. because you know I don't because I'm neurotic, and and so I looked. And he has this, on his own bio. Mm-hmm. He has it, these are his questions. He wrote like about his bio. So he's writing the questions and answering them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Second Timothy. And then his next, what books have influenced you? Uh, besides the Bible, and his answer was, I've read many books outside the Bible, but nothing as important as, you know, has influenced me like the Bible. And I thought, 
you're so Christian that you can't even say another, like, even though like you said beside the Bible, you couldn't bring yourself. And I thought, wow, I, I, I was, I, I'm honest. I was discouraged and, and the, and the, and the service was, was discouraging as well. <laughs> but uh, uh, now I feel like I'm breaking the rule. We talked about being judgmental. So right. <laughs> one of the things you say in, in, in early in the book is that Martin Luther King once asked, what is it? that is supposed to articulate the longings of people more than the preacher. And I love that phrase because so often, right. This is why we go to therapy and stuff, right? Like what we want is often elusive, right? Like if you, if you know, even though we're desiring creatures, oftentimes through layers of sort of our own, like, you know, neuroses and our own, you know, things from our family systems and systemic things. It's, it's, it's weird that like, we often have to have our hope. That's right are teased out of us right like it, it's so it's not just it's not it's less prescriptive and more descriptive you're describing what's there but yeah. you're excavating it for people and i mean that that to me is an art and a grace and and something that that seems to me to be the preacher has to be social psycho intuitive social psychologist in a way to do that that i think is that's got to be hard to teach people how to do. Mm-hmm. And it, it very much so is. And that's why I think formal theological education is so important, uh, particularly uh, in pursuit of a terminal degree. So a master of divinity degree ought to be uh, a comprehensive way of looking at what's available in the theological world. And if one is kind of, proficient in knowing things about theology, systematic theology, philosophical theology, church history, pastoral care, uh, preaching, uh, uh, Bible. If these things are kind of conversation partners throughout one's ministry life, then that person, I think, has a well-orbed perception or or perspective that can serve uh, our greater society. And, um, and quite frankly, I just don't think uh, either theological or divinity schools or seminaries or divinity schools are uh, either not doing a great job or uh, in some ways we have sacrificed um, rigor in exchange for kind of quick fix theology. Yeah. yeah. Cor- Cornel West talks a lot about, I think he's quoting Gramsci here about the organic intellectual. And you look at somebody like Karl Barth or Martin Luther King and his young preachers, it's not like they knew everything or anything, but you're... But you had this sense that I'm just two examples off the top of my head. But people that when they were confronted with things in social reality and political reality and their own existential stuff, they had resource. They could self teach a bit and explore and write and work through things. That something about their formation gave them an ability to to continue to explore. And and yeah, I think that that's probably in short supply these days where people. Yeah, that's why there's always some like, I'm sure there's like these, you know, there's a, a sort of plethora, right, of preachers that are so certain on everything. And you just, when you hit any ambiguity, you just get a following because it, it, people in anxiety and struggle are drawn to certainty a lot, right? Right. That's right. I heard uh, Richard Rohr um, say that uh, the opposite of faith is not certainty. The opposite of faith is, uh, in many ways, doubt. It is simply w- Walking in the dark, yeah, and trusting that the little light that is revealed uh, is safe enough for one to try. And I just I think that's absolutely on point. And I think that's what's wrong with much of the Western evangelical theology is that we're telling people that the opposite of faith is being certain uh, in a concrete, hermetically sealed type of way, and that's just flat wrong. It's wrongheaded. You have this great quote in the book from uh, Luke Powery, who I know you know. He says, what is inside preachers is just as important as as what comes outside of preachers through words and actions. And that is so, I mean, I I was struck by that. And and you have this example of the sermon, The Other Jesus, and, and Jesus in the Transfiguration, which he preaches about, has comes to us as, as other and not just as the God of our back pocket or something, that's right. you know, the God in our back pocket. I, that's, you know, I think it, that kind of, that idea that what's inside you as a preacher is important. I, it, it, it seems it almost 
obvious and after you read it and yet it's not obvious right like and i it's probably hard for most preachers to find a place find a this space in their personal lives where they can just see what's inside of them right like what's welling up in their soul what sort of inner dialogues are going on that that are interesting and 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 maybe or the voice of the spirit hitting their spirit or spirits and then also, like, because we, you said it seems like a lonely life very often. There aren't many places, you know, like I, Carl Bart on Saturday, Saturdays, used to, when he was a young pastor, used to run 19 kilometers at like four, four in the morning or something to meet his buddy, uh, Turnheisen. Really? To just re- read and talk about their young, their young ministers, you know, stationed, you know, in these. And I, I think about like how most preachers wouldn't have to go that far, right? Most right. preachers, their colleagues, but most, I mean, it, 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 I, I would guess more preachers than not don't have uh, people that they can explore their insides with, right? Right. And that, that's so critical. I mean, um, of course, you don't want another to preach the sermon that you're intended to preach. However, peer insight and uh, questioning uh, one's own sense of, you know, am I in the ballpark? Am I getting this right? Uh, I think it helps to, to have a wide enough feedback loop so that um, a lonely vocation doesn't have to mean you're you're on an island all the time. What I like about what uh, Luke Powery says, though, is that, um, uh, and it's also what Augustine says, is that a preacher is a petitioner before ever a preacher or a speaker. And uh, it's so important that one is spiritually grounded uh, in such a way, not not perfect, but uh, developed a a mature enough spiritual life that one can be contemplative in one's uh, thinking and pre- preparation uh, for preaching. And um, with Powery's work, you know, he's focusing quite a bit on pneumatology and the, the work of the spirit, the role of the spirit in uh, proclamation. Uh, I think it's just, uh, I think it's helpful. I mean, it's, uh, it shouldn't be revolutionary, but what I've discovered in reading many homiletics texts is that, you know, there's abundance, there's an abundance of techniques uh, discussed, but very rarely uh, do uh, substantive or sustained, uh, is there sustained uh, reflection on the role of prayer uh, for preaching? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I, I had this really interesting interaction with a guy who's a, Filmmaker and writer, best-selling author, and atheist. We were talking a little bit about his film, and we got talking about G.K. Chesterton, and mm. it was on, uh, I think, August thirty-first because I tweeted this out. I think on that day, I said, "I think the occupational hazard of being a minister is the temptation to take for granted the sheer joy of being a Christian. It's like the best game in town." And I thought of that as this guy was telling me what he appreciated about. He's in, you know, he's like, I grew up secular Jew. Just belief was never something, but he's like, the way you talk about this is very enlivening and, and and this idea that like the preacher is a christian first and foremost right that that yeah. you're the one i think eugene peterson says like you know churches are just groups of sinners gathered in different times and places and the preacher is the one they single out to remind them every week that this is all about god <laughs> right like, <laughs> and so it's right. so that this interesting that you're the appointed but you're per, first and foremost coming a, a, a pilgrim in the faith. And I think that, that it's easy to forget the beauty of that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And often uh, we, we, we uh, disregard just the, the importance of recognizing our own humanity when we are uh, trying to point others to a liberative vision in Jesus Christ. I, I just think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon. 
of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsmith, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You know, I, I'm struck. I, you have a, a sermon I want to talk about in a minute by John Howard Wesley from Alexandria, Virginia. And I've, I've been to his church before, and I was at a conference that was hosted there where he talked about the Bible and pastoral authority. And the crowd was, it was diverse, but I'd say it was so majority white and, and white sort of progressive evangelicals. And I could see the disconnect because a lot of these people were interested in what we call like the post-Christendom reality, right? Where where in in majority sort of white circles, the idea is like, at least in, in a lot of the country, the coastal spots, the blue states, the uh, urban spots where the church, the white church is sort of dis, is more disestablished, right? And, and, and the preacher is not a figure of authority. And while the black church was never fully established in America, right? I mean, it, it, it was always an outside institution because of racism and discrimination. And yet within that outsider thing, the preacher still probably is a more culturally legitimate figure in black culture than in white culture. And I, in that, I mean, that's intriguing because you, 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 and I would say probably even in black popular culture, look at Kanye, right. And these, these services and these, you know, like where, where it's, it's interesting because you, cause we are in a more secular age and yet the, the black church exists in a unique kind of position in that sort of post Christendom reality. I mean, is that, is it, you know, how do you negotiate all those challenges as you're thinking about the context you train preachers in? How do you sort through the sort of secularizing tendency? And yet it seems to be a lot of them will be in a predominantly black context where, where it is still kind of probably more religious. And how do you negotiate all that stuff? No, I expect the church to evolve with uh, the times and be able to uh, to not just react to the next trend or the next fad or some long-held tradition. Uh, I think much of in white, predominantly white spaces, you know, the emerging church, the missional church, and um, a lot of that is simply a reaction uh, against modernity and even post-modernity in some ways. But I think the great value of many African-American churches that are true to their indigenous traditions and, and heritage uh, is this sense of it's com- it's very communitarian this communal antiphonal exchange that takes place between preacher and uh, parishioner and that I can't express enough the great value in kind of sharing the gospel in a space of worship where uh, where the uh, the listener won't let the preacher flunk if you will because this is a shared uh, moment and we are, you know, celebrating the 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 the, the, the beauty of God and, um, but of course, you know, all things can be taken to its uh, place of distortion, and so it's not uncommon uh, for uh, one to see many African American uh, congregations uh, that have either uh, sacrificed this kind of exchange for celebrity, allowing. Uh, and this is no no dig at Kanye, for example, but uh, this uh, you can make digs at Kanye. I there's probably some dig- there's probably some yeah, stuff Kanye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's probably yeah. some stuff Kanye. Yeah, I want to be empathetic, but at the same time. By the way, those Kanye services I found out are invite only. <laughs> a little different than Jesus. Oh, you got to get an invite. You got to get an invite. And I think, I think that's uh, regrettable. It's tragic. It's lamentable. I mean, in the sense that what of this is about Jesus? I mean, this is all celebrity culture. And, um, and if we're not holding 
uh, ministerial leaders or celebrities who've kind of taken on these religious uh, roles or uh, perceived religious roles, uh, if we're not holding them accountable on the justice side of things, for example, if I'm if I'm coming to Christ and I'm inviting people to Christ, but at the same time, I'm not saying to them that there is a responsibility to critique capitalism, for example, I can't, um, I in some way, uh, uh, I, I damage the message uh, if, if, for example, if Kanye is celebrating Jesus, but at the same time celebrating wealth. I just don't see how those things uh, are compatible. Uh, and, and it just makes me wonder, you know, what are we doing uh, to the faith that uh, is supposed to be redemptive? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, Martin Luther King pointed out that 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour. 11 a.m. Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in the country. And that's still, sadly, you know, there's probably more integration, more diversity than in his day, but it's still, by and large, pretty true. Except, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the celebrity and prosperity preachers, they all get along, right? Whether black, white, they get a charismatic. Yeah, yeah so there's that. There's no <laughs> like that celebrity bubble. All of a sudden, like, <laughs> it, 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 they it, it gets stamped out, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, wait, we're all celebrities here, <laughs> right? 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 Who has the biggest church? Who has the most members? Who drives what? You know, it's, it's shameful <laughs> in, in, in so many ways. And saddening. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that, and you touched on this a little bit before, uh, but I, I just want to read this quote from your book. Okay. You do this uh, in chapter two about unmasking evil and dethroning idols. You say, uh, there's always the understandable temptation to jump to the biblical and theological resources that sit well with you, mm-hmm. with your deeply cherished beliefs and convictions. Stretch yourself, you say. Uh why impoverish your exegetical imagination by chatting with your regular theological buddies every time you prepare a sermon? There's much fruit to be obtained from picking fights with commentators who have contrasting opinions on a subject or theme. I, I love that hmm. advice because I think like that's incredibly hard to do. Uh, it, it, and yet it's, I think as, you know, what, what did Karl Barth say about Schleiermacher? He said to his students, no one can hate here unless they are first tempted to love here and dare I say are tempted to love and love again. And so there's this sense in which, you know, you stretch yourself and you see more of the truth oftentimes by befriending people that really drive you crazy. I, I wonder who are the people that drive you crazy that you've befriended like in your own life? Like what are some of the sources voices that you're like, Hey, this drives me up the wall a little bit, but uh, you know, I get some insights here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I wasn't ready for this question. But <clears throat> let's say um, many, well, this is a great example. I was in a grocery store just the other day and there was a guy who just, you know, really wanted to argue me down. Uh, he saw that I had a, my Howard School of Divinity uh, t-shirt on and, uh, and was just very insistent that uh, if you are a Democrat, you're going to hell. Um, based on two issues, and that is, you know, the issue of abortion and homosexuality. I, I, mean, I like, okay, is this guy black or what? No, he's a white guy. White guy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, but like, it, it I mean, could have I, easily I, I, come from a person of color. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, not, I, I would have thought I would. I would have thought like it'd probably be easier for a black Christian to to sit. Like, I just, I mean, mm-hmm. gosh, the, the the I mean, that guy. That's that's that's. That's a lot of chutzpah to do that. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, you know, but he's very convinced in his own theological. Did you know this person? Or is this no, this is a total stranger. You know, I purchased wow. ice cream and just, you know. <laughs> Were you alone? Him. I was alone. I was alone. And um, and I actually, you know, wasn't prepared to engage him until we just began to have the conversation. Uh, but he is representative of so many people who have bought into an Americanized version of Christianity that can't see beyond uh, politics, one's partisanship. And how long did you talk with this guy? Ah, uh, I gave him about fifteen minutes. A good fifteen wow. minutes. Wow. How did it? Yeah. Like, what, what? What? What were some of the things he said? I mean, how did you? Like, were you yeah. like, hey, let's slow down a little bit? How did you? <laughs> how did you get it into a mode where you could even talk, like, have a back and forth? Yeah. So. I made some assumptions. 
about him, and he also made some assumptions about me, I'm sure. Uh, he was probably 60 plus, but um, had, you know, decent enough knowledge of doctrine and um, uh, I would say a, a conventional understanding of Christian faith. Um, <clears throat> and so I tried to engage him on that level, but to, you know, to challenge some of his beliefs in respect to faith and science. I mean, he's very convinced uh, that, you know, the Bible says what it says and it, you know, it means what it means. And, um, and we don't invite questions to the scripture. And I just, I vehemently opposed, I'm opposed to that. I think uh, the way in which we obtain a better understanding of who God is, is by asking our questions and not making the assumption that the Bible is self-interpreting and that we don't have to do our work to, to get, uh, get to gain some clarity. And so, you know, we, we, we went down the road of um, kind of racism and hegemonic structures. I didn't use the word hegemonic, but um, how those things get uh, in imperialism and colonialism. How Does he believe that, racism is real? Was he like, okay, I can see uh, racism is real? I mean, was he? Yeah, but he wasn't willing to concede uh, the fact that uh, some of us have privileges that others do not. And uh, a large, uh, a good bit of that has to do with um, access. I mean, he wasn't willing. I mean, he was, he was, you know, I love everybody, you know, black or white, it doesn't matter. Um, but at the same time, he was not making very much room for, uh, for critical discussion beyond what he, what he had already intended to, uh, intended to say. He wasn't listening <laughs> for one, one thing. He just knew what he knew and, uh, and wanted to convert me to, uh, wanted to convert me in the process. I mean, that's interesting. When somebody comes up to you like that, I'm always thinking, what's their end game? Like, how could they imagine that they're persuade? I mean, because it's so hard to persuade somebody of anything, I think, right? Like this, you know, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge. And so I'm just trying to imagine him think, okay, I'm going to go up to this guy. You know, I'm an old white guy. I'm going to go up to a guy who's a little younger than me in black and Howard. And I'm just going to attack all the stuff that is probably deeply connected to, to his sense of who he is. And, and, you know, in 15 minutes, I'm going to wrap it up and have, you know, I'm going to give him a MAGA hat. <laughs> like, wow. Like, you know, like, how do you, how do you imagine that's going to go off? That's fascinating. And I, you know, I ended up asking him, you know, uh, did he vote for Trump? And he hesitated and I perceived that he probably did. And so I, I, you know, I asked him the question, uh, is Trump? This is why Trump's poll numbers are always like five points. You have to always add five points because either I don't want to say I did. I, say I did, you know. <laughs> and, and you know, do you say? I mean, you're you're very dogmatic about who's going to hell because they perhaps take you know a reproductive choice position that you know many don't share. Or uh, but but is Trump a Christian? Is he going to the heaven or hell? Do you want to put other people in? Uh, I, I wanted to know that. And I wanted to know based on what uh, criteria do you or what standard do you hold, you know, the leader of the free world to in respect to um, religious faith? Is there is there a test? Um, and uh, he was dumbfounded. He, I mean, he couldn't he couldn't speak to that. Um he was comfortable articulating his small uh, version of, of faith. It's, it's funny. I, I had a guy on the show last year, Jonathan Fee, who teaches where I did my undergrad, Messiah College. And he wrote a book about the rise of Trump. And even, he's an, a, a, an evangelical historian. He's a United States history guy, really interesting guy. But he talked about Pastor Jeffries, the guy in, in I think it's, is it Dallas or Houston, Houston or Dallas? Dallas, maybe Dallas, Dallas. Yeah, the, 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 he wrote the help. His church wrote the "Make America Great Again." Him. Uh, well, yeah, it's funny because he notes that in like 2014 or something, he wrote this book called "Our Twilight's Last Gleaming," mm. and in it he quotes Luther. And you know, Luther says, "You know, if I'm sick, I'd rather have a, a you know a Muslim surgeon than a Christian butcher." And Luther's kind of saying, like, you know how, you know, I'd rather have the person that's pragmatic. And and this guy's critiquing Luther and how he says, "No." Christians can't think like Luther. We need not just Christians, but Christians with a Christian evangelical worldview in politics. 
And then two years later, he's more Donald Trump. I, mean, like, like, I was just like, I mean, whatever, like, how could yeah. in two years you just said, like, hey, you know, like Luther was too permissive. And now you just got the most, you, you just went totally permissive. Totally permissive. Yeah. It's, it's hypocritical. That's yeah, right. yeah, it's 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 very, it's unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but this is the world we're in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You talk about we talked a moment about John a moment ago about John uh, Howard Wesley mm-hmm. in Alexandria, and, and you included a sermon of his that came after the Trayvon Martin verdict, and he preached the sermon about living, not being able to live with a verdict, a hard verdict, and he 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 brought it into the verdict of Jesus, the sentence on Jesus on Good Friday and, and, the, and Simon of Cyrene being kind of drafted into this. And, and yet also Simon of Cyrene, this African Jew who his children seem to later be in, in leadership in the ancient Mediterranean church and, and all of this under this verdict that was hard to stand under. And yet God is in the midst in this sort of, Totally sober analysis of the tragedy and darkness. And yet, as you talked about, punctuated intermittently with this piercing hope. I, I just thought, wow, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it seems like he painted a, a, on a canvas in front of everybody and, 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 and painted a picture of the crucifixion and Jesus and the injustices and the presence of God uh, resisting the, 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 those dark and, and deleterious and dehumanizing forces. And, and, and it seemed that he allowed people to find in that scene with Christ at the center all the range of their emotions. Yeah. That all of that could be in Christ, in the, in the, on the landscape. And so everybody could express the full range of their frustration, confusion, hope, uh, exhaustion. And, it, and Christ is there. I mean, that to me is when, you want, when you've done that. Uh, you, you've you've given people more than just a sermon. You've they've had an experience with with Jesus that they can go to again and again. That, that in the midst of their own confusion, that, that they can again and again find that the, those things redescribed for them. That's right. In, in Jesus, I mean, I thought that was it's a brilliant sermon. It, really? How did you find that sermon? Oh my gosh, I, I've listened to it. I've shared the sermon with my my class. Uh, I teach a course. Uh, Titled African American Prophetic Preaching, and I just give it high marks in the sense that it came out of a social cultural kind of situation or reality that was so pregnant with with uh, uh, it 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 was it, it invited the discourse into the space because it what what was shared needed to be said. Um, I think a, another part of the brilliance of it was based on his his gifts, but also kind of his reading of the moment. Sometimes we have to jettison what we have prepared in order to uh, to do what the Spirit wants us to do in that moment. And I I, I thought that his yielding in that moment uh, allowed him to be at one with the proclamation, and and uh, and it was just just a, a masterful way of encouraging the pulp the the people pointing them toward hope um, and doing it in a way that was respectful to his own cultural reality uh, but not exclusive where uh, others who don't share his tradition um, could not uh, receive the word yeah it was inc- yeah, it's incredibly moving and, and thanks for including it because again it's it's you, you highlight a lot of preachers in this book that I that I think people do well to visit and revisit I, you know i i was i came across this article by the a minister wrote a couple of years ago okay. on it was and it was about how to pray better in public and private and he he looks at thomas cramner's collect colics in in the book of common prayer mm-hmm. and he says there's always these these components there's an address you know the name of god a doctrine some truth about god's nature that's the basis the petition what's being asked for the the aspiration what good results will come if the request is granted. And then in Jesus' name, remembers that it's all through Christ. So example of this, like one of the famous ones for the service of communion, Almighty God, there's the address, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires, are in, and from whom new, no secrets are hid. So there's the sort of doctrine, there's the reality of God. And then the petition is cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then the aspiration that we may perfectly love thee and worthy, worthily magnify the holy name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I thought there's something so simple about that. 
but but profound. And you, I, I was like, I, this is actually, I'm going to start doing more of this because you talk about these encouragement, the encouragement to sort of crystallize and crystallize. You say, I love, you say, um, what can I say? You know, declaration. And, and you give an example from your own, like uh, God's, God's gift of real presence to a world bereft of compassion, empathy, and regard for neighbor is the site of God's kingdom. But you sort of have worked that down from a sh- like from almost a paragraph claim to a simplified claim, and you simplify it even more. And I just think of like, you know, I again when I've heard these comics talk about writing over and over to to get this thing that's so crystallized, right? And 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 you look at those simple prayers in the Book of Common Prayer or something, or you hear this brilliant joke when there's so much uh, intentionality behind the simplicity, right? And, and, and I mean, how, like, I wonder, do students chafe at that? When, because I, cause I could imagine how, as a student, you, you, oh, come on, how, how you could dismiss this. But after thinking about it for, you know, just as I was reading that stuff, I thought, gosh, I, I know that when I, when I communicate best, it's when, it's when I have this refinement, when, when I can say things, in crystallized form. I mean, it just was, I saw in Morning Joe, Donnie, uh, oh gosh, Donnie Deutsch was, he said all these years in advertising, if you can't get it in a, in a, in a simple sentence, it's probably, you're not going to convince anybody. And I mean, that, is that hard to explain to students? Cause it's, 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 is it, are they like, Hey, you're, you're fencing me in. I think it, I think it's, I think it's very difficult. Uh, that's why I encourage writing, uh, and polishing. Now, some 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 people have incredible extemporaneous gifts, you know, and so the question always comes, you know, uh, should I uh, preach from a manuscript or abandon it or some combination of the two? And um, I just I tend to think that uh, life happens in some ways where a full manuscript can't be produced, but if we are intentional, if we pre-plan, if we uh, are seeking to uh, be good stewards over the, the, the craft in which we have been uh, entrusted, uh, then we, we ought to spend that time. We ought to take that time to, to craft and dwell and, uh, and proclaim in ways that uh, evoke or inspire something beautiful uh, in, the, in the proclamatory assignment. So, uh, teaching that is is uh, is very difficult because you can't teach desire. You know, one has to want to become better at what at what one does. But I, I do think, on a technical level, uh, shaping that claim with those three questions: um, what can I say? What can I expect? And what must I say? Uh, for lamenting people. Uh, these are the three questions I think are at the heart of trying to get a handle on uh, on a sermon. I think that you, I love that you say you can't teach desire. I heard someone say one time giving a lecture that one of the things that could have killed Michael Jordan was his own ability because he was so naturally gifted as an athlete. He might've thought he didn't need a coach like Dean Smith to take it to the next level. Where he's like a guy like Larry Bird, he's just a doofy white guy in Indiana. And he just does well. They know how to make lanky, doofy white guys like me into really good basketball players in Indiana, right? Like I just go in the system and get trained. And I think, I mean, I I would think with preachers, right? That if you're the best extemporaneous person, this will only help you, right? Because you'll be able to communicate in more of a crystallized fashion, even extemporaneously. But this, I mean, this is almost the problem, right? That this gifted communicator can overlook these basic fundamentals that are there if you do them i I just think again the stewardship idea that 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 really you will benefit the the people it's a way of loving your hearers i mean it's it's just really important right sure sure i i I think at the end of the day preaching is an offering and some of us sometimes we have a lot to give and other times we don't Um, but when we don't have much to give often it's because we have poorly planned or we've procrastinated, or spiritually speaking, uh, God is just not done uh, revealing what God wants to say. And sometimes that means revising in the pulpit. Um, and we just have to, we have to, to kind of uh, be listening, uh, uh, be attuned to what the Spirit wants to do. And uh, I, uh, I think that preaching can be extremely stressful. <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. I think of that letter John Wesley got right in the in the in the 18th century. Somebody said, "Dear, dear 
Mr. Wesley, God has no, the Holy Spirit has no need of all your learned book knowledge, to which Wesley wrote back, you're absolutely right. He also has no need of your ignorance. (laughs) But this is sort of, this is the problem, right? And I think in our politics right now, it's like we always love these people, the outsider or so. And so I I had a guest on here who wrote this book called The Death of Expertise, how we sort of, we just sort of, not just indifferent to expertise, we almost demonize it. Like, and we make a sort of, uh, we idolize uh, ignorance almost. Why? I mean, there's no, (laughs) (laughs) why? I mean, it's it's really, uh, it's a devaluing of our humanity when we don't honor honor our whole selves, which include, which is inclusive of our intellect. As a teacher of preachers, I mean, are there things, I'm sure like you have to sit with students or whatever and listen to sermons in class, right? And evaluate them and things like that. I mean, are those, that strikes me as, as like something that would be awkward uh, uh, because you probably got people that are, shy to give critiques people that are all too excited to give critiques people that don't handle criticism well you've got to figure out how to sort of be the person that reigns it all in i mean is that that strikes me as like an exhausting thing it's tough it really is it really is but if if throughout the course of the semester leading up to kind of the practicum as uh, part of the, the class if the homiletician has done a good enough job of preparing uh, all listeners in the class to be good homiletical critics, then it makes it makes that um, constructive uh, response time after a person has preached. It makes it go much more smoothly. And uh, and so I make no no bones that you know not all of you will be uh, preachers as you kind of un- understand what a preacher does. Um, you will all hopefully give witness to what has claimed your your life but um we're all in different places and when some students are too heavy-handed in their criticism i i have to intervene um when there's something that needs to be said that i feel will uh, cause kind of more harm to the student if i'm just too forceful i'll put it in writing i'll 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 say you know i'll have more comments for you uh, in writing I, I just think it's utterly discouraging to uh, to pick at you know at people because of whatever deficiency or whatever uh, whatever they they bring to that moment. Uh, now I've been known to um, bring a preaching moment to a halt when people have abused their time. They have ten minutes to preach. I expect you to preach in ten minutes, not fifteen. <laughs> and if you do that, you're just not being a good steward. So, so it's time for you to sit down, and um, and so that can be an embarrassing situation for the student. But uh, you know, they have been sufficiently warned. When you guys at Howard do, when the Divinity School does graduation, do you do it with the rest of the university? Is it all in one? We have two ceremonies. So, okay, you have a ceremony with your school, and then you have a ceremony with the entire university where. where only doctoral candidates uh, walk the stage. Every other school, they just stand with their dean and uh, the, the, the acknowledgement that the degree has been conferred uh, uh, takes place in that way. But in the separate ceremonies, um, our students walk. And Didn't Oprah speak a couple years ago at Howard? She did. Um, President Obama spoke uh, after her. Um, That's too big. How? Who follows those two? <laughs> well, I mean, it's very difficult. Every year, we get a kind of a last minute um, not- notification of who's going to be the next orator or convocation speaker, and sometimes it's disappointing. Other times, not. Uh, who was like? Who was better, Oprah or Obama, as a commencement speaker? Uh, I think I was a little more engaged with uh, President Obama. Uh, I thought he. Um, as an orator, uh, I think it's, there's a particular polish uh, that he has that uh, resonated with with the crowd. Um, I thought also um, another recent uh, convocation speaker was uh, the gentleman, uh, Chadwick Bozeman, who played T'Challa in Black Panther. He's a Howard 
University alumnus. And um, of course, that brought a lot of people out just as, you know, if, if not as, as, as many as came out for uh, Barack Obama and Oprah. I mean, they're always kind of looking for the, the celebrity, the star to come. Oh, yeah. And when Oprah came to were people thinking she's going to go, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. <laughs> <laughs> like That's why I imagine it would be like the hope. Like, yeah, she's going to give us something. Yeah, she's going to give it. It's Oprah. Yeah, yeah I, th- I thought it was amazing. And it was major press at Morehouse when at their last commencement ceremony, the, billion, the black billionaire Robert Smith uh, offered to... Uh, to pay the loans for all graduating students. And I can't tell you how significant that was. Of, of Can't you imagine Jesus telling a parable like that? Let me tell you about a billionaire to commencement who forgives all the loans. Like, you're like, no, he didn't. He didn't do that. Like, but it's this ultimate like symbol of capitalism that undermines the thing. <laughs> it's beautiful. I just think it's beautiful. And that's how you, that's a reparational move. That's how you get people to a place of, of liberation from the structures that continually uh, keep people in per- perpetual uh, debt. You, you give them an opportunity uh, because you have been afforded an opportunity and you do it in a philanthropic way, not expecting uh, anything in return except uh, the recipient paying something forward and doing likewise. I, I think that's the Christian way. Well, if people are looking for insights on how to do what you just did take a, a great moment like that and then see how it unveils the gospel moment and and critiques and brings hope and does it with beauty they they could get exodus preaching because it's a great book and thanks for writing it my friend and thanks for spending some time talking to me about it thank you so much scott i love you bro <laughs> ditto man all right thanks for listening to give and take if you liked what you heard please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Kenyatta for coming on the podcast to check out his book, Exodus Preaching. You will not regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take, my friend. Until next time, fare thee well.